Good morning. It's a joy to be with you this morning to worship uh, our one true and living God. I've already read for us the sermon text this morning, but I would invite you to turn back with me again to Daniel chapter 4, and we will look at uh, this story of our God who uh, is God alone. You'll see there in your bulletin on the screen, I I originally titled this sermon, The God Who Humbles the Proud, which is probably a fine title. It's an apt title. Little confession time here. Most pastors don't give a whole lot of uh, time and attention uh, to what our uh, sermons are titled, but probably a better title uh, for this sermon would be The God Who Alone is God. It reminds me of a story that I read this week of Louis XIV, the great uh, emperor over the king and the king of France. Uh, during Around the time of the French Revolution, he uh, died, and at his funeral in the Cathedral of Notre Dame, uh, he ordered that all of the candles and all of the lights uh, be snuffed out, except for one candle alone that was to be, to play, that was to be placed at the foot of his coffin. Uh, symbolically to say that he alone was the light of France. I love the story that the vicar uh, there at Notre Dame, when he got up to give the eulogy, walked up to the candle, put his hand over it, and snuffed out the candle, and his eulogy was just a few words long. His eulogy was, God alone is great. That kind of fits with the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. As we've been studying the book of Daniel, uh, we have seen and we remember that God's people have been long exiled in the country of Babylon. Daniel and his three companions that are the focal point of the book uh, have faced all kinds of temptations. They've faced all kinds of trials and persecutions. They've even been threatened with death uh, because they persistently Uh, mark themselves by faithfulness to their one true and living God. But we know that God had indeed placed Israel there in Babylon under the rule of this wicked and arrogant king because of their idolatry and because of their unfaithfulness to the Lord's covenant. It seems as if Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar's gods have the upper hand. But repeatedly through this book, we have seen that God proves himself to be faithful and sovereign over all. We've summarized God's faithfulness throughout our study by saying in chapter 2 that God is the God who reveals, in chapter 3 that God is the God who rescues, and now in chapter 4 we'll see that God is the God who rules over all men. I think Daniel's message here in chapter 4 is just as relevant to us today as it was to Israel back when it was written. To those of us in this room who are Christians, to those of us who are seeking to live our lives in faithful obedience to Jesus and to his commandments, we can quickly become discouraged and tempted as we look at the world, as we look at the culture around us. It seems like the wickedness and the rebellion of men is winning the day. And it's in moments like that that we need to hear the voice of God reminding us that he alone is God. I want this text to speak to us today 
I especially want this text to speak of those to you in this room who have not yet put your faith in Christ. Those of you, perhaps, who have strayed away from the Lord. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never realized your dependency upon the Lord. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've forgotten how dependent you are upon God. And I pray that through this passage, you will see your great need for him. So with that, I want to remind us of kind of the overarching idea and main purpose of Daniel's book. Uh, You can see it there on the screen in your outline that the main idea that God is in control God is in control, even in the most difficult circumstances, sustaining his followers' faith. And the reason this book is given to us is to encourage believers to live faithfully as citizens of God's kingdom. Now, I know this is a long passage. It was a long story, but I, I really want to see three main principles in this story. And those three main principles will be the focus of our sermon this morning. So beginning with number one there in your notes, point number one God gives a sober warning against human pride. God gives a sober warning against human pride. And maybe you already noticed that we began chapter 4 meeting again our old friend, King Nebuchadnezzar, that wicked and arrogant king of Babylon, the mighty king of Babylon who destroyed Jerusalem, who whose armies destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and brought the people of Israel into exile. One thing you might have noticed in chapter 4 that's interesting is that chapter 4 is the written testimony of Nebuchadnezzar himself. We don't know if Nebuchadnezzar wrote these words with his own hand or perhaps he spoke them and Daniel wrote them down for him, but nevertheless, this is Nebuchadnezzar's own testimony of how the God of heaven the Most High dealt with him in his arrogance. The chapter begins with a formal address. In verses 1 through 3, it tells the story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the fulfillment in verses 4 through 33, and then finally it ends with Nebuchadnezzar's praise in verses 34 through 37. So this chapter is a little bit different, but really the story that it tells is all the same. King Neb who views himself as more powerful than Daniel's God, who was warned of his finiteness in his vision in chapter 2, who pridefully boasted to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as he threatened to throw them in the burning, fiery furnace, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? Only to see the Son of God with his own eyes deliver these faithful men out of the fiery flames. He finally comes to see and to realize that he is not God. He's humbled literally to the dust by the one true and living God. But how does God do this? How does he humble this proud king? And by extension, how does God humble us today in our prideful rebellion against him? Well, there are three things, three things that I see here in this story of King Nebuchadnezzar that God does to soberly warn Nebuchadnezzar of his pride, and the same three things he does to us today. The first thing, God graciously gives Nebuchadnezzar revelation, not the book of Revelation, but he he gives him revelation. 
The story begins by saying that Nebuchadnezzar was at ease in his house and he was prospering in his palace. His life was going great. You might even say he was living his best life now. The American dream, all the way back in Babylon. But you notice in verse 5 that all of that security was taken away in the blink of an eye. And I think here, even at the outset of this story, it's a, this is an important lesson for us to learn. That relative peace and relative prosperity are no secure hope for our lives. I think parents, this is a good lesson for us to learn for our children. Uh, what, what more could you want for your kids than relative peace and a life of relative prosperity? Well, friends, that is, that is no substitute for God. It's no substitute for knowing the God of heaven because those things are fleeting. They're passing away. It only takes a moment in life to rip away our peace, to rip away our prosperity and to pull the rug out from under our feet. What disturbed Nebuchadnezzar's peace? Well, again, just like in chapter 2, it was a dream. It was a revelation given to him by God. The text tells us the content of Nebuchadnezzar's dream twice. Uh, first in chapter, ten, or chapter 4, verses 10 through 17, and then in verses 20 through 23. But in summary, he dreams of this great tree. This tree uh, was not only universal in size, that its top reached to the heavens and that you could see it to the ends of the earth, but it was also universal in its benefits. All the beasts of the uh, field and the birds of the air and all flesh were fed and sheltered and shaded by the branches and leaves and its fruits. Sounds like a pretty nice dream. Sounds like a pretty nice dream. That is until this heavenly watchman comes and gives a decree to remove the tree all the way down to the stump so that all the beasts and the birds and all human flesh would be scattered. What happens next is the really disturbing part. This is, this is what caused Nebuchadnezzar to lose his peace. I don't know if you noticed it as I read the text, but did you notice the shift in pronouns that takes place between verses 14 and 15? Look at verse 14. The tree is described as an it. Lop off its branches, right? Strip off its leaves. Scatter its fruits. But then, the pronoun changes in verse 15. The Holy One says, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be be with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's to a beast, and let seven periods of time pass over him. Surely, this is another message from God. But what in the world does it mean? That's what kept Nebuchadnezzar up at night. Just like we saw in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar makes a decree. He calls together all of his magicians and all of his enchanters, all the astrologers and these Chaldeans. 
And yet again, these men proved themselves to be utterly and completely incompetent. One commentator says that the writer's purpose here, just like it was in chapter 2, is to underline the failure of paganism and to say that there is no light here. So God gives Nebuchadnezzar graciously revelation. But not only that, he gives Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel a compassionate interpretation and an admonition. So Daniel gives him the interpretation and he gives him an admonition. In in verse 8, Nebuchadnezzar says, at last Daniel came in before me. Right, God's great gift to this wicked pagan king was Daniel, who served as a beam of light into Nebuchadnezzar's dark dream. Daniel is God's means of blessing to Nebuchadnezzar in three ways. He gives Nebuchadnezzar undeserved, compassionate truth. Second, he reveals God's purpose to Nebuchadnezzar. And third, he speaks God's admonition to the king. So let's look at his compassion. Notice in verse 19, if you look down again at verse 19, it says that that Daniel was uh, alarmed and dismayed. Now, this doesn't mean that Nebuchadnezzar didn't know what the dream meant. Uh, The text is really clear that that, that Daniel knew exactly what the dream meant, but what the meaning was alarmed Daniel and it disturbed him to his core. Now you think, he he cries out there in verse 19, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Now you would think that Daniel, this faithful Israelite man, who by the way was given a new name by this king, Belteshazzar, and Belteshazzar is a name given after the false god that Nebuchadnezzar worshipped to add insult to injury. You think that Daniel would look at this king and look at God's revelation of what he is going to do with this king and that he would rejoice. Finally, he's going to get what's coming to him. I can't help but think of the difference here between Daniel and Jonah. You remember when we studied the book of Jonah together just last year? When Jonah preached to Nineveh, that wicked uh, city of the Assyrians that were also Israel's great enemy in the north, and God gave a respite to Assyria because of their repentance at the preaching of Jonah, and Jonah sat up on a hill and pitched a, pitched a royal fit. This isn't what they deserved. They deserved fire and brimstone. Why would you save an awful people like this? It's not what we see Daniel do. Daniel sets the better example. Daniel sets a truly godly example. Because you see, friends, a true servant of God displays love-driven sadness over the brokenness of sin. A, a, A true godly servant is broken over the the effects of sin. And we cringe at the thought of God's holy wrath being poured out on anyone. But at the same time, this true servant of God speaks the hard word from God anyway. 
I think that's a good lesson for us as well today. We don't rejoice in the consequences of people's sin. We don't rejoice in the punishment that comes upon people as a result of their sins. We shudder at God's holiness and his wrath. And we preach God's word anyway. Secondly, Daniel makes known God's purpose in his sober warning. Three times in this story, in verse 17 and 25 and 32, the Bible says, the purpose for this vision is that you may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. You see, friend, God always has a way to take those of us who forget our need for him and remind us of our humble dependency upon him. God always has a way to take those of us who forget our need of him and to remind us of our humble dependency upon him. And that's really the point of the story. And that's really the lesson that we should all learn. Not only does Daniel show compassion, not only does he show God's purpose, but he also gives an admonition. He gives an admonition. Look at verse 27. He says, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that they may perhaps be a lengthening of your days. Maybe if you would turn from your sin and do what God tells you to do, maybe he will relent. This is the word, by the way, that God had given not just to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel, but this is the consistent word that God had given both to his people and to foreign nations throughout the Old Testament. The prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 through 8, God says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from his evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. Now I want us to understand something here. This admonition that Daniel gives to King Nebuchadnezzar is not an invitation to accept Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. This is not an invitation to personal salvation. What this is, is it's an admonition and a promise from the Lord that if this wicked king, as a representative of this entire nation, would turn from his evilness and do right, then God would postpone the punishment that he had planned for them. It's what Jeremiah says. It's what Daniel says. So let's not make this, you know, the, the call to response and sing just as I am and invite King Nebuchadnezzar down front. That's not what this, that's not what's going on here. This is this is a offer of respite from the wrath of God that is already planned. So God gives revelation, God gives interpretation and admonition, and then finally God gives opportunity for Nebuchadnezzar to repent. Look down at verses. 28 and 29. It says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end of 12 months, he was walking 
on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. At the end of 12 months, an entire year passes between God's revelation and his admonition and the opportunity to repent. A full year of chance after chance to heed God's warning and to heed God's call. A full year of opportunity to repent of his arrogant pride. Friends, I hope that you see here God's sovereign patience at work on full display. You see, God's patience is always given to give an opportunity to repent and turn to him. It's always that way. You see this over and over again in Scripture. There are probably some of you who are here today who have heard the good news about Jesus, about his life and death and resurrection and and our salvation that comes through his work. You've heard the gospel call to repent of your sins and to turn to Christ in faith. And you think, that's all well and good. That sounds really nice. And you know, pastor, maybe one day I'll get to that. I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. And so that all sounds really well and good. But, I got a few things I want to do first. Got a few things I want to try my way first. I want to live my life and have some fun and do it my way for a little while. I'll get to God later in life, but for right now, I want to do things the way I want to do things. It's a common response to the gospel to presume upon God's patience like that. If that's you this morning, here is the warning from God's word. God's patience is given for a time. It's given for a season. And it's given to you by his grace as an opportunity to lead you to repentance and life in Jesus's name. But here's the warning. That patience is limited. It is a season that comes and goes. It's passing. Friend, that's you today. My plea to you this morning is that you will stop presuming upon God's patience. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Listen to his call to salvation. Turn to him in repentance and faith. Trust in him because you see, there really is no such thing as a delayed response to the gospel. There is only outright rejection or humble acceptance. So to push your response off until tomorrow is only to reject him today. Hear God's word to you this morning from 2 Peter chapter 3. Starting in verse 5, it says, Don't overlook this fact, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3.15, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus, if you've never trusted in him as Lord and submitted humbly your life to him, hear the gospel call to you this morning. It's God's mercy to you. This is your opportunity to receive his good news. And there is no promise from scripture that there'll be another. So God gave Nebuchadnezzar revelation. He gave him admonition and he gave him opportunity. What would the king do? And that brings us to point number two. Point number two, God's sovereign work to remove human pride. Nebuchadnezzar responds in absolute pride and arrogance. He, he responds in arrogant pride. A whole year passes by, plenty of time for the king to harden his heart against God's word, to presume upon God's patience, and then look down at verse 29 again. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon, and the king answered and said, here's his answer to God's revelation. Is this not great Babylon, which I built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And it was at this point that God's sovereign patience ran out. The text says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. God broke his year-long silence, and he quite literally humbled Nebuchadnezzar to the dust. Sinclair Ferguson said of this passage, he became externally what God knew him to be internally, a beast. Reminds me of another story that we heard Pastor Richard preach just a few weeks ago from Luke chapter 12. Remember the arrogant rich man who looked out on his farm and he saw the great crop that he brought in and he said, what am I going to do with all of this crop? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to build bigger barns and I'm going to store it all up for myself and I'm going to say to my soul, soul, Take it easy, retire, throw the feet up on the couch and live out your days in complete happiness and peace and prosperity. You remember what the Lord said to that man? You fool. Today, your soul is demanded of you. God ripped King Nebuchadnezzar from the height of his glory and made him eat dirt. What makes us think that he will treat us any differently if we continuously rebel against him and presume upon his patience? Well, you might be asking yourself a question. Where in the world is the gospel in all of this? You know, we hear a lot about God's work to save, but here we see just a very vivid picture of God's wrath being poured out on this wicked king Where's the good news? 
Bring some gospel light into this dark story. It's there. It's there. Where's the gospel in this? Well, the gospel is, is there's a better king than Nebuchadnezzar. See, Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan, wicked, awful, arrogant king, led his people into rebellion against the Most High God. But one day there would come an even better king, an even better king who would work to remove our pride from us. And he did this by humbling himself. You see, King Jesus, Pastor Jacob read for us from Philippians chapter 2 to begin the service. King Jesus humbled himself and he brought himself low so that we would not have to be brought low to the dust. The text says that even though Jesus was God, he didn't count his godness as something to exploit over us. But he humbled himself by taking upon himself a human nature, living a perfect life that none of us could ever live going to the cross and dying on the cross in our place, bearing our guilt and our shame and our sin upon his own body. And the text says that God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth should bow, and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The extent to which God goes to save you, a sinner, from your arrogant pride, stretches from heaven, to the cradle, to the cross, to the empty tomb. And that good news is available for you today if you would turn to him in faith. Look at the consequences of rejecting God's word, but look at the reward for responding to God's word of salvation through faith in Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar learned the lesson the hard way so that we wouldn't have to. He learned the lesson that we all need to hear, that one day every knee will bow to King Jesus. And you're either going to bow to him in worship, or you're going to bow to him in judgment. Final observation as we close out our time today, point number three, God's merciful restoration of the humble. God mercifully restores King Nebuchadnezzar. Several times the passage here, we see this period of seven, the seven periods of time passing over Nebuchadnezzar uh, in his humiliation, right? What in the world does that mean? Now, <clears throat> is it seven days? Is it seven weeks? Is it seven months? Is it seven years? What's the seven periods of time? Well, uh, I, the, the number seven, I think this is a symbolic period of time. The number seven in Scripture, as many of you know, is a number that is used to symbolize. Uh, it, it's used to symbolize completeness and perfection and wholeness. And so here, this this reference to seven periods of time, it's, it's not a known period of time to us anyway. It's not known. Uh, it's just a, the, the right amount of time it took for Nebuchadnezzar to learn his lesson. That's how long it, it, it took, right? So I, I think it's best to understand this time as God's perfectly ordained amount of time 
to teach Nebuchadnezzar that he alone is God. And at the end of this perfect and complete period of time, the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar's reason was restored to him. And what a difference it made, because the chapter closes out with the king's confession of the goodness and sovereignty of God. Notice three last things really quickly that we can still confess today. The first thing he confesses is that God is sovereign over all things. Friends, not only is God sovereign over nations and kingdoms, he is perfectly sovereign over every detail of your individual life. He is in control of all of it. His sovereignty not only holds the universe together, his sovereignty controls your daily life. And what good is that to us today? It's good because it means you can trust him. It's good because it means that you can count on him. You can trust him when the world and the culture around us just seems to be going crazy. And you can trust him when the small daily things in your life spin out of your control because he's got it. That kind of trust only works if you acknowledge the second thing that Nebuchadnezzar confesses here. Not only does he confess that God is sovereign, all, sovereign over all things, he confesses that he is not God. Friends, if you get anything else out of this sermon today, get this. You are not God. I'm not God. It sounds so simple and basic, but it's incredibly profound. No one can say to God, what are you doing? Because you aren't God. We like to think that we're in control of our lives. We like to think that we're God, but we are not. Be reminded this morning that in just a snap of God's sovereign finger, we can be reminded that he alone is God and we are not. Thirdly, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The question for you today, friend, is will you respond to God's work in pride or will you respond in humility? Will you live your life dependent upon his sovereign grace? Let's pray together.